Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is May 9th. The first event comes from 1934. The most devastating work stoppage in Oregon's history lasted 82 days, paralyzed commerce, and laid off 50,000 Oregonians. It also established one of the nation's strongest unions on the West Coast. In 2008, 95-year-old retired longshoreman Marvin Ricks was the last surviving Portland veteran of the Great West Coast Waterfront Strike of 1934. When he needs a taxi, he wants a Broadway. He remembers that Broadway cabbies delivered sandwiches to him and his comrades on the picket lines. These sandwiches were lovingly prepared by Margie, K. Florence, Helen, and Smiles of women of the Villa Rooms on Northwest 3rd Avenue off Burnside, who may have off offered other services on credit for the duration. The strikers also got crucial support from farmers who brought milk, fishermen who delivered clams, hunters who contributed deer for the strike soup kitchen, and the college students who signed pledges not to scab. Despite widespread unemployment, the Oregon Workers Alliance promised their 30,000 members that they would stand five men deep along the waterfront and there would be no scabbing. Even some sympathetic Portland police officers passed on intelligence to the strikers. There are no known survivors among the opponents or targets of the strike. As members of the Oregon's better-known families, including those linked to its early history, they were just as determined to break the strike as Ricks and his union members were to win it. They considered the strike a clear and present danger to the state and formed a citizens' emergency committee to open the port. The group was led by a host of luminaries, including the failing estates Henry Cabell, Henry L. Corbett, Lumberman Aubrey Watsick, Amity Smith, E.G. Sammons, Attorney Robert Sabin, Frank Warren, E.B. McNaughton, Henry Wendell, Henry Wessinger, Harold Stanford, and General Ulysses U.S. Grant, Rock of the Marne, Alexander. All of, supported by the staff of the Portland Chamber of Commerce. If the local press showed more sympathy for them than to the strikers, the presence on the committee of Simeon Winch, Don Sterling, and Philip Jackson of the Oregon Journal, Paul Kelty, Palmer Hoyt, and O.L. Price of the Oregonian, and Tom Shea of the News-Telegram may offer an explanation. Oregon Governor Julius Meyer pleaded unsuccessfully with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to send federal troops to stop the strike because, he concluded, we are now in a state of armed hostilities. The Portland Chamber of Commerce received a warning from the U.S. Army that Portland is the worst spot in which to release troops at the time because there is a revolution in the making. Such action would precipitate it. In the atmosphere, the Citizens Committee voted to hire more than a thousand vigilantes organized into a semi-military organization called the Citizens Emergency League, declaring that we must end the strike with peaceful means if possible, but if necessary by other means. They accepted that deployment could doubtless lead to bloodshed and perhaps loss of life. And there was bloodshed and loss of life. Hired strike breakers were housed in the Admiral Evans, which the strikers attacked and cut loose to drift into the Broadway Bridge. Police escorted a train to Terminal 4 in St. John's, fired on the strikers, wounded four of them in what became known as Bloody Wednesday. The strikers' navy plied the waterfront armed with slingshots to discourage strike breakers. Vigilantes fired on cars carrying New York Senator Robert Wagner, sent by President Roosevelt to mediate the strike. 
It was not until the strike ended in victory for the longshoremen that the first death was recorded. James Connor, a student, was killed by shots fired when the Union men demonstrated against strike breakers at Alberta Hall. Marvin Ricks was among the 29 longshoremen falsely arrested for the murder in the incident. <coughs> the longshoremen's solidarity, community support, and militancy won them coastwide union recognition, a joint hiring hall, and substantial wage and hour improvements. The Portland local joined the post-strike movement to reject their corrupt AFL union and to join Harry Bridges International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Oregon ILWU locals now include Portland 8 and 40, North Bend 12, Astoria 50, Powell's 5, as well as the Columbia River Pensioners Association, which stands on the foundation of the 1934 strike as rare survivors of militant unionism. In 1976, Air France Flight 139 from Tel Aviv to Paris was hijacked, kicking off an infamous incident that saw IDF storm the Entebbe airport and rescued the hostages. The flight was hijacked after a short layover in Athens by four terrorists, two from Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine and two from the Bader Meinhof gang in Germany. They forced the captain to land at Benghazi airport in Libya, then shortly after flew to Entebbe airport in Uganda, where Ugandan soldiers and President Iji Amin supported the hijackers and helped trap the hostages. This marked the beginning of Operation Entebbe. The hijackers separated the roughly 100 Jewish and Israeli hostages from the rest of the captives. The non-Jewish passengers were freed. The hijackers demanded that 53 captives imprisoned in Israel and other countries be released. On July 4, 1976, four transport aircrafts holding more than 200 soldiers took off from Sharm el-Sheikh to Entebbe, 4,000 kilometers away from Israel. The flight took eight hours, flying extremely low to avoid any radar. It was less than 90 minutes from the moment of the fourth aircraft landed until its return to Israel. Almost all the hostages were rescued. Speaking at the Knesset at the time, Prime Minister Rabin, who ordered the raid, said this operation will certainly be inscribed in the annals of military history, in legend, and in national tradition. During the raid, Israeli opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, Yonatan Yoni Netanyahu, was killed, shot in the back from a watchtower by a Ugandan soldier after leading the rescue. During the memorial for the anniversary of the Hebrew date, incoming President Isaac Herzog eulogized Yoni as a national biblical hero. Recently, a Jewish center in Uganda was dedicated to Yoni Netanyahu, serving as a synagogue and community center to the Jews living in the community. And finally, at least 100 people were trampled and crushed to death at a football match in Ghana last night after police triggered a stampede by firing tear gas into the crowd. The match in the capital, Eric Accra turned violent when fans began hurling objects onto the field. Police responded with tear gas, creating panic in the stands as spectators rushed to escape the gas, witnesses said. Witnesses reported that the home team, Hearts of Oak, was leading 2-1 against Asante Koto Kotoko with five minutes left to play when Asante's supporters began throwing bottles and chairs onto the field. Ambulances raced through the streets of the seaside capital more than an hour after the stampede at Accra Stadium, the city's main playing field. Radio stations were broadcasting appeals for all doctors to report to work to help treat the injured. It is a great national tragedy, said the Minister of Presidential Affairs, who visited the hospital. Many people have died, and many more are wounded and are bleeding. He also added that at least 100 people had been killed. Military or hospital officials also gave that figure, but some local media reported that more than 120 fans had been killed. The hallways of Ghana's military hospital, number 37, where many of the casualties have been taken, were crowded with bleeding, injured people as relatives searched frantically for loved ones. He, uh, the uh, 
presidential minister of presidential affairs urged relatives to return home saying they were crowding the hospital and creating problems what is important now is to remain calm it is a night for us to mourn and not a night to worsen an already bad situation with anger and impatience he said at the ridge hospital bodies lot in dusty ripped clothing were covered in sheets and laid out on the floor this morning a wounded woman was helped into the hospital with one man supporting her under his arms and another carrying her IV tubes. The stampede was the fourth soccer tragedy to hit an African country in a month. 43 people died in April in Johannesburg. Another stampede on April 29th killed seven people in Lumbashi, Congo. And on May 6th, fighting broke out among fans at a soccer match in the Ivory Coast, killing one person and injuring 39. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com The 1934 West Coast Longshoreman Strike at OregonEncyclopedia.org 1976 Israel Plane Hijacking at JPost.com and 2001 Ghana Soccer Fans Stampede at TheGuardian.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.